short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. <laughs> yeah, I know oh. it's about Vietnam and we're talking about Korea, but... Uh, Don't you matter. Know, what, yeah, R.I.P. Big Robin. Yeah. Episode 196 of the Cold War Show, my little friend. Yes. Say hello to yeah. my little friend. How are you doing? Doing okay. Um, I almost got the gig for the new version of Fantasy Island, but they decided not to have uh, Tattoo or whatever his name. <laughs> and I auditioned. I dressed up in the white suit and everything. I was like, I got... Ooh, diplet, nothing. I Fuck tell you me. what. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. I would make a good Ricardo Montalban, I think. I think right. the two of us together, me as Ricardo yeah. Montalban, right. you as Tattoo, right. we, could, we could do that. Yeah. We could we could pull that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How about this? People come, better. People, right. people come to Fantasy Island right. and then we just tell them, you know, history nerd facts the entire right. time and they're, they're there. <laughs> yes, and they're trapped on the island. We get Tony to buy an island, no shipping, you can't get off, and we just tell them, History stuff until they pay even more to leave. Gold mine. Gold mine. It'll take about it's five out. minutes. It's our fantasy on the island. People that have to that's listen the, to us. That's the twist. Talk that's about this. Ironic. That's the twist. Yeah, that's yeah. The yeah. Twist. I don't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, We're going to be it. so rich and happy mm. yeah. and high. But that's a given. At the end of the last episode, we were talking yes. about uh, the Battle of No Name Hill or the Battle of Bloody Ridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Pearson, young guy, 27, veteran of the Pacific War, Sergeant John Pearson was saying that he saw the Marines go marching up the hill and then coming back down in stretches. Right. And as you said at the end of the last episode, then the Australians flew in in their P-51 Mustangs, machine gunning mm-hmm. the North Korean trenches in the dawn. Now, this was the number 77 squadron mm-hmm. of uh, Australian-built Mustangs they were flying. Oh, okay. Led by Wing Commander Lou Silver Spence, Nickname was Silver Spence because, like me, he had right. uh, white hair. I think it was blonde, oh. very blonde hair. Right. From my hometown of Bundaberg. Now, I'd cool. never heard of this guy, surprisingly. Right. We've got right. a lot of statues around Bundaberg of, of another. Oh, uh, not yet. Sorry. Not yet. Not yet. No. Of a. Give it time. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I'm, I'm it's always been my dream that there will be a statue of me in the middle, in the main street of Bundaberg, doing a goatsy. Uh, right. I think we figured with, out the flaw, but I, I wish you well. With my face, well. like between my legs, looking and smiling, and my butt pulling a goatsy. But uh, I'm going to have to get it commissioned myself and have right. it erected in the middle of the night. I don't think it'll stay long. <laughs> right. Long enough for me to get some photos of it. That's yeah. all. Yeah. But... Yeah. Uh, I'd never heard of this guy, and right. uh, the, the the guy who's the pilot who is famous in Bundaberg, Bert Hinkler, flew the first solo flight, I think, from um, the United Kingdom to Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Very famous for that, but I'd never heard of this. So I pinged my mum, and I said, hey, you ever heard of this guy? Now, my mother's brother, Reg, was right. a fighter pilot for the RAAF nice. um, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. The 70s um so i thought she and you know he's from bundaberg she's from bundaberg yeah. this guy's from bundaberg she goes no never heard of it 
So she reached out to, uh, long story, Family Connection, also ex-RAAF, and right. he said, oh, yeah, this guy's a legend in the RAAF. So I'm sure my uncle would have known who this guy was, even though I've never heard of him. The, nice. um, the 77th Squadron was specifically requested by Dougie Mack. The mm-hmm. Mustang was considered the best long-range ground attack aircraft available at the time, and... The number 77 squadron from Australia was considered the best Mustang outfit they had, at least in Japan, if not the entire world at the time. Wow. Nice. And MacArthur wanted was, the best. Yeah. He wanted the best. Uh, now, there yeah. was a friendly fire incident that occurred on the 3rd of July, 1950, mm-hmm. when the number 77 squadron attacked a train full of US and South Korean troops mm. on the main highway between Suwon and Pyeongtaek. inflicting a lot of casualties, 29 of them fatal. But before Mm. the mission, Silver, Silver Spence, had raised concerns with command that the North Koreans couldn't have penetrated so far south. They said, attack that train. He was like, no, I don't think that. And they said, no, 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 do it. it, Just do what you're told. So he did it. And And he was right. uh, it was widely reported in the American newspapers, but Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer, the commander mm-hmm. of the U.S. Far East Air Force, right. cleared the RAAF of the blame. And Spence was recommended for the U.S. Air Medal for meritorious service in operations mm. from the 25th of June to the 15th of July. Uh, Stratemeyer himself arrived in Iwakuni a week later to surprise Spence by awarding him with the U.S. Legion of Merit for outstanding leadership in the preparation of his unit for combat. Damn. Okay. A couple of weeks later, on September 9th, in cloudy conditions, Spence led three other Mustangs in a low-level napalm attack on a place Mm. called Angangni, Right. So interesting that Americans and, and Australians were, were using uh, napalm yeah. and a lot of other biochem- a lot of biochemical weapons as well, which we'll get into later on. But um, and during this attack, he attempted to pull out of a very steep dive, but crashed in the middle of the town and was killed. Right. Whether he was hit by ground fire or just misjudged uh, or something else happened mechanical, mm-hmm. we don't know. Right. But there you go. Big uh, final ending, got the Legion of U.S. Legion of Merit, and then uh, crashed and died. Right. So, but a Bundy boy that I'd never yeah. heard of. So there you go. Cool. Surprising Rem- to me. Remember when we mentioned that the British reluctantly sent over a brigade? It was uh, the 27th Brigade, and uh, it, it was barely approved uh, because, again, the British were suffering and they had other uh, more concerns in Europe. Um, the, when the British land doesn't exactly start out very well. And I, I don't know what, if this guy was in charge of PR or he just wasn't all that sh- bright or whatever, but the British Brigade lands. Its commander, whose name is Basil Coad, which he should be picked on for that name, walks up to an American officer and the Yank says, glad you British have arrived. You're the real experts at retreating. This is your fucking ally that you begged to come here and you give him shit right when he gets off the boat. Not exactly a way to build a bond. But that's, I guess the American was trying to make a joke about something, but uh, not, the, not the way to, to start off uh, bringing the band back together to fight North Koreans. That's all I'm saying. I just thought that was very funny, but tacky at the same time. Ah, he's taking the piss. Yes. Mm. Uh so yeah, the British government uh, were were finally bullied uh, into Pretty sending much. a token ground force to Korea. Yeah. The twenty seventh brigade, part of the Hong Kong garrison, was sent, according to Major John Willoughby, one of their company commanders. As a fighting unit, we were virtually untrained. <laughs> they could they have just became... sent podcasters. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> they became known as the Woolworths Brigade uh, because they didn't have any equipment or clothing. Woolworths is a big, uh, right. it's like Walmart, right? Right. So in, had to go there and buy the UK their stuff, and also in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Where's Guns R Us? Thank you very much. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't have any specialist gear for warfare in extremes of cold or heat. No sleeping bags, only a handful of vehicles. But we're here. Uh, the the winter clothing that they had was left on the dockside when they marched out. With the bombs. Of, from Pusan. When right. they came back, it was all gone. Someone stole it. completely looted. Yeah. Fucking. Probably Americans. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Now, we talked in the last episode about atrocities um, committed mm-hmm. by the North Koreans. You know, by atrocities, uh, you know, I'm talking. I'm mostly talking about the execution of prisoners. They get right. called atrocities in the history books. Uh, and we've talked before about atrocities uh, committed by the South Koreans, by Rhee, and by the Americans. I've talked about some Australian journalists and British journalists reporting on this, William Burchett, etc., Right. Uh, by the way, uh, shout out to Victor. Uh, Victor co- uh, contacted me after our last episode or a couple of episodes ago now, I guess, saying that he hadn't heard of William Burchett for many, many years and he was um, glad that I brought up his name. Oh, cool. I learned this week, though, about another Australian journalist who witnessed brutality in Korea. This is a guy called uh, Dower, Alan Dower. He was an Australian journalist, but previously had been a commando captain in Timor in the Second World War. Damn. Okay. Um, this I found this in Bruce Cummings' book, uh, The Korean War of History. He said, Worst of all, in another reporter's eyes, were the Korean National Police. These are the South Korean uh, specialist police you, you mentioned before. Right. Uh, they ran rackets, procured destitute girls for brothels, blackmailed people by threatening to call them communists, right. and executed thousands of political prisoners. In November 1950, an Australian journalist, Alan Dower, witnessed a retinue of hooded women, many with babies, roped together and dragged along by ROK police. He followed them until they were kneeling before a deep, freshly dug pit ringed by machine guns. Dower pointed his rifle at the commander and said, if those machine guns fire, I'll shoot you between the eyes. And so he saved the women, at least for the moment. Good God. Why aren't all these cops or whatever of Reese special police, why aren't they on the front line? You would think this kind of stuff would not be as important when you're about to lose everything. But for whatever reason, I guess some people have different priorities or life goes on for some people, no matter what is going on. Well, you know, what I said in the last episode about the realities of a, of a civil war, particularly mm-hmm. in a poor country, Applies to the South Koreans as much as it does to the North. Back sure. then, the South Koreans were just as poor and just as filled with peasantry as the, the North were. Mm-hmm. But I guess the same thing applies. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if you have prisoners, what do you do with them? Right. Now, South Korea had had, like, tens of thousands of political prisoners in jail, so they obviously could deal with it. But if you're on the run, trying to move south, you, you, don't, you can't really take tens of thousands of prisoners with you when you're on the run. That's Good not going to work. So you, get, you got to carry food. I don't know. Yeah. The practicality, it's easy to moralize about these sorts of things and say, mm, that's right. bad, okay. But, but it's it's really hard. It's like when, you know, when you talk about the stuff that I say about Stalin mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s, like it's easy to give a simplistic moral uh, lecture on it. But when you actually think about the practicalities of the situation, it's very hard to figure out. Yeah you know, what, what you do differently. I guess what I find confusing is, or something that I can't wrap my head around and we judge other people's actions by what we think we would do. But again, just the screwed up priorities you've got, you've lost what 70, 80% of your country. And you're worried about these communist sympathizers who are women getting away or or with their children or whatever. They're not exactly going to be a military threat if you let them go. But I guess for whatever reason, they just weren't willing to do that. And and when there's a complete breakdown in society, I just don't get people holding on to what I deem to be secondary uh, priorities when there's North Koreans coming down trying to kill you and, and take over your country. So the whole thing just seems extra brutal when it doesn't have to be. Just let them go and get the fuck out of there. But that's not what happened. They, Like you said, they were going to wipe them out and put them in that pit if that guy hadn't stopped them. Yeah. No, women and children, I guess, you could probably release relatively safely, but who knows. Yeah. 
And it wasn't just the South Koreans and the North Koreans, it was also the Americans. Journalist William Bloom in his book uh, Rogue State mm -hmm. talks about revelations that amongst many other such incidents, American soldiers had machine gunned hundreds of helpless civilians and hundreds, hundreds more were killed when the U.S. purposely blew up bridges they were crossing. Jesus. He also writes, uh, and this is fast-forwarding a little bit, but in the early part of 1952, during the Korean War, the Chinese claimed mm -hmm. that the United States was dropping quantities of bacteria, insects, feathers, decaying animal and fish parts, and many other strange objects that carried disease right. over Korea and northeast China. The Chinese government declared that there had been casualties and quick deaths from plague, anthrax and encephalitis, amongst other diseases. Then, in August, an international scientific committee was appointed, composed of scientists from Sweden, France, Great Britain, Italy, Brazil and the Soviet Union. After an investigation in China of more than two months, the committee produced a report of six, some 600 pages, many photos, and the conclusion that the peoples of Korea and China have indeed been the objectives of bacteriological weapons. These have been employed by units of the USA armed forces using a great variety of different methods for the purpose. Is there a parallel between that and say, oh, I don't know, let me just try to extrapolate something randomly. Um, taking a bat to a lab in Wuhan and creating COVID and releasing it. Does it sound like that? I mean, we're purposefully using infected animals or whatever to do this. And that sounds like that that was pretty much established, whereas we suspect the Chinese did the same decades later. I mean, I don't know. We're, we're judging no. it. Yeah. For, yeah. for a start, nobody really suspects no. that the Chinese did that. No, no, no one with half a brain suspects that the Chinese really no, did that. No, that was my attempted sick, sick humor. I apologize. But, uh, I mean, it's Inf just inf up. Infected their own population yeah. with uh, COVID. Not uh, the best plan. No, I don't think not, so. not the best plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. But, um, so we were doing that shit. And I guess, it, I guess you can justify it by it's cheaper than bullets or you save your own men by killing them by biological means. You can justify anything. Well, that's, you know, kind of how Winston Churchill justified gassing people in Iraq, right? Well, killing them is killing them, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if you kill how? them with bullets or gas. It's all the same thing, right? Right. Uh, Americans like to justify the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that way, too, in conversations that I always have. It's like, well, is it any worse than right. the firebombing right. that we did? Right. You know, of uh, Tokyo. Right. Or, they died faster. Or in so, Germany. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. Did you read, because I don't want to ruin this, but you were talking about journalists um, seeing things while they were there. I, I didn't do much research, but I was asking if you did about the British um, journalist Cameron, uh, James Cameron. Uh, he saw some stuff by the Reed government between 1945 and 1950. And yeah, uh, equally disgusted by what he saw South Korean troops doing and, and police as well. But uh, the North, so the North, you know, were brutal, if you like, in terms of executing prisoners or mm -hmm. executing civilians. So were the South. So were the Americans. Yeah. Really. And the Americans were dropping, you know, uh, bacteriological weapons on Korea and China. It was just... It was bad, okay? Yes. It was yes. bad. But, yeah. you know, you don't tend to hear about the South and the U.S. Uh, in in mainstream histories. You always hear about, oh, the communists were bad and were brutal. Right. And even in a lot of the books that I read, like Bruce Hastings' book, he tries to make out... It's not Bruce. Max Hastings' book. Right. He tries to make the North sound worse. He does acknowledge that the South and the US troops did some bad stuff. But then he tries to make out that the North were far more brutal. Um, uh, it's hard for me to see, like, by what measure exactly. were they far more brutal? But, you know, that kind of propaganda is still out there in the history books today well the the problem i have it what's that old saying um the victors get to write the history books or something like that so the south we know the south is going to hold on to south korea and even though there's like thousands of bodies found in Taejon, it's like five thousand bodies um 
because the South and the Americans get to hold on to uh, South Korea, we know they're going to write the official histories. And so if they wanted to make information disappear or at the very least not get out, they can do that. And if they want to emphasize what the North Koreans did, they can do that as well. But the argument of Kim killed a lot of people. Ri only killed lesser people. So he's the gooder guy. I mean, he killed less, so he's the good guy. I mean, that's not that's not a great argument to make. Uh, but again, it's just a complete breakdown of everything that happens during war and civil war all at the same time. And so there's just brutality and mass murder on both sides. And the, and the, the other problem is that how do we know who killed who? We, yeah, How do exactly. we know that thousands of dead civilians found in South Korea weren't killed by South Korean troops? Yeah. We just uh, just had a story from this Australian journalist who he saw South Korean troops about to execute South Korean women and children because they believed they were communists. Right. We don't know who, how many they actually did kill that yeah. he didn't stop. It, it, it's very hard to know. And for, as we said in the last episode... For the American troops at the time, gooks are gooks. They're all the same. Exactly. Now, maybe some are wearing the uniforms of the North and some are wearing the uniforms of the South and you can tell them apart, but I, there's probably a lot of executions that went on that we don't know about. I, I think it, from everything that I read, it just sounds like both sides, yeah. all sides, were just brutal in terms yeah. of getting rid of prisoners, probably for quite practical Yes, Machiavellian reasons, right? Just yeah. um, you know, we we this is the only thing that we can do. We can't afford to do anything else with them. But it also seems to me when you're looking at the North Koreans and their perspective of the South Koreans, it seems to me that the North saw the South, particularly a lot of the commanders of the South mm -hmm. and the and the government, as collaborationists who right. had previously served the Japanese ah. and and now are serving U.S. imperialism. Right. Yes. They just traded Japanese imperialist masters for American imperialist masters exactly. to prevent Korea from uniting in, as one country, which is what they wanted. Again, in Bruce Cummings' book, he writes, and he's talking about the North here, they essentially saw the war in 1950 as a way to settle the hash of the top command of the South Korean army, nearly all of whom had served the Japanese. During the Korean War, this was barely known to Americans. Mm -hmm. And when known, was deemed to be of dubious import because by then Japan was our ally. Right. This is not a matter of what we think, however, but what they think. The Japanese occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945 is akin to the Nazi occupation of France in the way it dug in deeply and has mm -hmm. gnawed at the Korean national consciousness ever since. Yeah. And, and no one likes to talk about, just aside to add on to that, no one likes to talk about that France sent troops with the Nazis when they invaded Soviet Russia. So did other countries, but France did as well. But no one likes to bring that up because it's something that makes them cringe. The same thing here. I mean, the, the Japanese were in control for a long time. But you're right. The North Koreans are going to go, yeah, I don't care what the situation was. You were siding with the Japanese. You are now the enemy and you have to be punished. And so that's their point of view when they're coming down. And if you look at it like that, they're not cruel. They're just harshly dispensing justice for people who have betrayed their own country. It's all it's all about military. a point of view. Yeah, yeah exactly. Military justice. Exactly. And, you know. From their perspective, the Americans that came in just reappointed these Japanese yeah. collaborators. Yeah. Who was in charge when, when we <laughs> got here? South you? Korea. Yeah, you're yeah. back in charge. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, really? And you, you want them to run the entire country, the Japanese collaborations? They had experience. I think the, <laughs> the Americans needed them because they had experience. Some of them spoke English and the Americans went, you know how to do the job. We don't have to start from scratch. Boom, you got the job. It was a military expedient. And it was the same in the early stages of the war in Vietnam, as yes. I recall, too, right? Yeah. When yeah. the Japanese finally got kicked out, uh, the uh, Americans and the, the French were mm -hmm. reappointing previous, you know, collaborationists in, exactly. in senior roles. Um, and, you know, Syngman Rhee, uh, who we, we talked about in the earlier episodes of this, hadn't been in the country for 30 years when, right. there was a, when they were fighting the Japanese. Kim was fighting the Japanese. Where was Syngman Rhee? Living it up in right. America, having being, a good old time. Being a good Christian, learning English. Yeah. 
And by the way, there's another thing too, which is fascinating. Um, there was propaganda being perpetuated by South Korea and the US at the time mm-hmm. that Kim Il-sung wasn't even really Kim Il-sung. Oh, here we go. There, were, there was this propaganda that, yes, there had been a great uh, rev, you know, wartime leader who fought the Japanese called Kim Il-sung, but right. this guy isn't actually him. This guy has just taken over his identity. Mm. He's some other dude. The original face-off, right? Facelift, yeah. whatever. And he, he, yeah, yeah. He put Nicolas Cage's face on himself. <laughs> no, other word. He put, well, he, he put, I don't know, John Travolta's face right. on himself. Sure, with a Korean and, accent. Yeah, yeah. And this, and I went, I went into the New York Times and I dug up stories about this from 1950. This was the propaganda that they were pushing. Well, look, I know you think he's this great war hero, supposedly, but it's not even him. It's just right. some other evil communist guy who's (laughs) trying to pass himself off as him the dread pirate roberts from a princess bride yes he gets in there and no one's gonna know because you switch the old one out you put a new one in but you get a new staff and a new crew who's gonna know who's this is brilliant except the except the dread pirate roberts was passing that identity down right to his successors he because he wanted to retire yeah yeah Almost perfect. By the way, I also Almost. I yeah. also dug up this. Um, I've got it on a thing here, um, right. put out by some organization called the NDSU Institute for Regional Studies. War Korean War propaganda leaflets during the Korean War. North Dakota native Albert G. Brower right. served as chief of the Projects Branch Psychological Warfare Division G three section. He was responsible for overseeing the creation of propaganda pamphlets that were airdropped over North Korea. And they've mm. got a collection of them in the NDSU archives of uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Hey, in fact, hey. Fargo. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> What's that a boot? No, I don't know. I don't know their accent. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is from watching Fargo. Fargo, yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> And so there's a, and I've looked through this amazing collection of these propaganda leaflets that they dropped over Korea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of them are disparaging Kim Il-sung's uh, history. Right. There's hundreds of these things. Uh, some are basically just talking about him being uh, Hitler. Um, sure. You know, the evils of communism. He's just coming to steal all of your stuff. It's all of this really, really... Uh, crazy you know psychological warfare stuff that uh, the americans were producing and dropping there at the time and now we hire professional firms pay well, barry and stan money. barry and stan run yeah. it all. pretty yeah. much yeah. pretty much yeah jesus yeah <laughs> the guy in north dakota mm-hmm. who did this stuff originally uh albert it was originally Barry, Stan, and Albert. He was the third guy for many years. Right. BSA was the name of their agency. And uh, eventually they had to get rid of Albert. Right. He was only good at Korean stuff. He, he, he didn't. Very, very specialist skills. Right. He, couldn't, yeah. he couldn't really, you know. And after the war. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you don't need yeah, it. Yeah. Sometimes you don't need it. They still, they come every time they need to make fun of uh, Kim. Kim. Junior. Kim. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Little Kim. Kim. Kim grand, grandson Kim. <laughs> little Kim, hey, little Kim. Uh, yeah, they need to, they need to bring you back yeah. in. Yeah. He's the only guy who can do it. He's, right. he's amazing. He's, he's amazing when it comes to anti-Korean propaganda. He's the best, Jerry. Right. He's the best. <laughs> they have to fly to his island. He's grown his hair out. He's got a big long beard, but he's the only male on the island. Oh, he's just living it up, and they have to and they have to they have to sacrifice a pig or whatever, and then he'll then he'll talk to him. He knows what he's fucking doing. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yes, I'm jealous. Do you hear it in my voice? I'm fucking jealous. But anyway, he's got a jet ski. I'm done. Yeah. But, uh, you know, getting back to uh, brutality and violence, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we have to keep in mind, particularly in in a war like this, it's a civil war. Yeah. Uh, You know, from the perspective of the North, they're fighting uh, imperialism Mm -hmm. uh, and the treatment of their communist brothers and sisters in the south by the yes. south um from the south's perspective you know they're fighting the evils of communism they don't want communism uh you know they don't want uh you know free food and, and health care and um you right. know, all of that kind of no stuff. billionaires Housing. yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. Or they no, they want billionaires. They want lots of billionaires. So they can. That's what they want. Oh, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want the wealth disparity that uh, capitalism brings. Uh, and these are poor, illiterate people. Like even the communists coming down from the north, these aren't highly trained communist scholars. Right. Uh, they're not. Right. They're not uh, Ho Chi Minh. They haven't spent their lifetime studying Marxism and and you know gearing up for deliver, delivering a Marxist society. These people. Right. I mean, Kim was probably educated, and he, could, he should have given orders: treat the people well. Mm-hmm. Um, these are our brothers and sisters down here. Have compassion for them. Treat them gently. Treat them like you would want to be treated. Golden right. rule. All of that kind of stuff. But I don't know whether he issued those orders or he didn't. But at the end of the day, you've got starving, illiterate civilians fighting for their lives. Yeah. And yeah, brutal stuff is going to happen in a civil war in a poor country under those sorts of circumstances. Now, yeah, if the U.S. hadn't got involved in the war in the first place, it would have been over in three days. Yes. And maybe a lot of lot less of this would have happened. Because mm-hmm. it all would have been over and done, and the communists would have been in control, and they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have dragged on for years and ended up in millions of people dead. Might have been better. Might not have been. We we don't really know. Right. It's a hypothetical. Yeah, uh, mm. I'm sorry. I was just going to say real quick. So when the North invades, at least one person wants the Americans to come in, and that's Re and maybe about 15 of his friends who've got the top positions, making all the money, got all the power and the prestige. But other than that, the other people of the probably country went, yeah, no, we're good. Either way, uh, no war, please. Thank you. We're just barely surviving as it is. So, yeah, there, there's like a 0.1000% of the populace of South Korea who probably wanted the Americans to come in. And it didn't matter if they didn't anyway, because Re is the one who said, America, get over here ASAP. And so we did, because Truman wanted to. Yeah, and Chiang Kai-shek wanted him to as well. Yes. Um, Now, the other thing that happened, of course, as the North is moving south, is they're releasing thousands of political prisoners that had been imprisoned and tortured by Sigmund Rhee in the south who wanted their revenge. Yeah. Uh, in, In many cases, they were you know, just communists who were advocating for communism in the South. They'd been tortured by the South. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the reports of mass slaughters in the tens of thousands, yeah. you know, the UN later estimated that some 26,000 South Korean civilians were slaughtered between June and September of 1950. Mm-hmm. But how many of those were done by North Korean troops? How many of those were done by political prisoners released from prisons who had been tortured by South Koreans for years? How many of those were actually done by South Korean troops or by American troops? We don't really know, I Mm -hmm. think. You know, it's uh, it's very it's a big, big sort of murky area that no one will ever know. Yeah, because if you had a bottomless bank account, you could if you could somehow examine all the bodies and go, these bodies were dead for three years, four years, whatever, then you could say it was re or whatever. It wasn't the Americans because we weren't there and it wasn't the, the North, uh, the North Koreans, but that will never happen. And again, they won the war because they pushed the North Koreans back. So they get to control the, the narrative and the narrative is these horrible things were all done by the communists. And because that's exactly what the Americans want us to say. And they're giving us money. So, that's the official line, and we're going to tow it. Well, it, well, even yeah. with the timing of it, like I'm, I'm expecting that a lot of the uh, uh, mass murders committed by the South Koreans of South Korean civilians mm-hmm. happened as the North was moving south. Right. They, so even in that their territory exactly. Were, so yeah, even that wouldn't work. Right. Maybe you could look at the bullets that were used, and you know, get yeah. uh, NCSI <laughs> soul in on the job to try and figure it out. I don't know. But it's not going to happen. Yeah. But. The propaganda in the West was that these uh, terrifying uh, communists were moving south. It mm-hmm. gave this "quote unquote" police action a sense of further moral legitimacy. Oh. Um, and there are stories of people who were socialists or communists in the south who at first welcomed the approach of the North Korean army, but then turned against them when they saw how brutal they were. Right, but. Again, it's one of those things. You will see those stories in the the history books, but 
I'm sure there were also stories of communists in the South who were very happy when the North came in and continued to be right. happy. I'm sure there were stories of uh, people in the South that had been treated harshly by the South and were, you know, happy to see them all executed. Um, and I'm sure some of the stories that were put forward in the media were fake stories, like mm -hmm. uh, the Nazaria testimony uh, from the first uh, Iraq war or, or, you know, a lot right. of the stories coming out about... Um, uh, China's uh, Uyghur camps by mm -hmm. people that are supposedly escaped from that or been released from that and shipped by the CIA to the West to tell stories about it. We've covered this on the bullshit filter. Right. We, we can't know for sure, but it seems to be that these are paid propaganda pieces because yeah. their stories have changed. They're paid for, brought to the US by CIA front organizations. Mm -hmm. It just looks like a standard CIA uh you know, psychop. So we 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 don't really know. Right. Same with these sorts of things here. I always take have to take this with a grain of salt. Do I think the North were probably brutal? Yes. Do I think the South were equally brutal? Yes. Do I think yes. the American troops there were brutal? Yes. I think everyone was brutal, but we tend to focus on the North yeah. and we sort of whitewash or minimise mm -hmm. the coverage of the brutality on the other side. Just because, to buy it. Yeah, yeah, we don't want you. We don't want you to think about that too yeah. much. Look over here. Yeah. 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 But, you know, at the end of the day, this was a civil war that was going to happen. And it, it, both sides wanted a civil war, as we've said. Mm -hmm. And it would have all been over quickly if the US and the UN hadn't got involved and stretched right. it out over years. Yeah. And hundreds, of, or was it roughly a million people that end up dead by the time this is all over with? Civilians and military? Two. Something like two million? Two. Yeah. Two million, I think. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, the, it wasn't just blowing up bridges where the Americans were killing civilians. They were also uh, strafing mm. areas. Mm -hmm. the, the Air Force, probably the 77th Squadron out of Australia as well, uh, on American command, you know, commanded right. by Americans, strafing. Um, hundreds of thousands of refugees uh, are fleeing down south and, you know, it's, they're getting caught up in yes. friendly fire or, or crossfire or whatever you want to call it. Millions of South Koreans were living like animals for the months that the North Korean army occupied the South, roaming the countryside, fighting each other for scraps of food yeah. for their families. It was a, it was a horrendous situation. Yeah. And the, uh, the North Korean troops are going to be, dominating the peninsula for about four months. It's going to change soon. But yeah, for those four months, as bad as their life already was before this started, it is now a living hell. And they're just subsistence living, just barely hanging on. Still, like you said, stealing crops um, from, from farms or whatever. They're just barely getting by. And, and no one's safe. There is no law. There is no organization. It's just you could be killed at any time. And despite... All the stories that we hear of the brutality of the North Korean army, uh, it seems like the South Korean army didn't want to fight. You know, right. you would think that if this horde of brutal uh, savages was invading your territory, you would want to stand and fight to defend yourself and your family and your friends, etc. Right. Mm, these guys, not so much. They just, uh, according to K Colonel Paul Freeman of the 23rd Infantry, the ROK's army's con contribution to the campaign was, quote, pitiful. But it right. wasn't their fault. They lacked the training, the motivation, the equipment to do the job. Whatever, where, Whenever their units were on our flanks, we found that they were liable to vanish without notice. They didn't yeah. have the motivation. On one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe by the history books that there was this horde of savages coming in and just uh, indiscriminately killing men, women, and children. Right. On the other hand... Colonel Paul Freeman is saying they didn't have the motivation to stand and fight. Really? That's too what did they think was going to happen? Too extreme. I, I the, the best that I can do is maybe some of the locals are picking up on Ree's attitude about we'll get the Americans or whoever to fight for us. Um, we, we don't have the training. We don't have the equipment. So, that, and so they can't ask anything of us, which turns out to be wrong. We'll leave it up to the Americans. They're the ones who like to do this stuff, so we'll depend on them. But yeah, if it's your country, I don't care if you have to pick up a stick. If it means that much to you, you try to resist. Uh, but there was a lot of that not going on. Yeah. Well, 
maybe you know when they were recruiting uh, South Koreans at gunpoint in villages. Oh, they were you saying, think Listen. that might have had something? To- yeah. Well, that might have. But yeah, no, I was going with those. They were saying, they were saying to them, "Listen." You're not going to have to. Don't worry about it. We just need to show the Americans that we're oh, making an attempt here. Yes. As soon as you get there, just turn around and run away. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. They'll make yeah. some racist comments about right. cowardly gooks, and it's right. fine. You just go back to your farm. But you know, just show up, yeah. clock in, then run away. <laughs> That's all. Then we can say, pull, well, pull so away. then we can say, well, we tried to. Yeah, yeah pull away. Yeah. Just pull away. Just. Turn up, don't do anything. That's right. Look, he's getting away with it. Yeah. He's getting paid. It's, it's gold. Fine. Gold, yeah. Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Genius business up. plan. <laughs> Just show up. Right. Uh, and the Americans are getting frustrated, but what they, they're in the middle of a war. They haven't got time to bitch about this. Uh, what are they going to do? So by the end of August, the North Koreans were making their final attempt to take Busan. They, they had some successes, but... They'd sort of reached the limits of their supply chain, men, yeah. guns, ammunition, and they just kept getting repulsed. They'd lost 50,000, 60,000 troops at mm-hmm. this stage. General Walker was able to hold on just barely long enough for a massive support operation that he promised was going to arrive soon from Japan and land at Incheon. Yeah, um, and the one thing about General Walker was even though it took um, his men under him and the brass above him to realize it, that with his literally yelling at everybody, like you said when he told the guys who were filling up their uh, canteens with water, get your ass to the front line, it was his energy and drive and constant hustling everybody that made the Allies realize they weren't so much winning as in they weren't currently losing. And so they're holding on, they're holding on, they're barely holding on, don't get me wrong. But like you said, the North Korean supply lines are starting to get weak. The men are starting to run out. They're starting to run low on, um, on ammunition. So the Americans are holding on. And so General Walker ends up being a hero of this time. Now, he doesn't know this, and everybody else doesn't know this. He doesn't have much longer to live, but at this moment, he literally does what Truman needed. He keeps the force together long enough for more uh, for more reinforcements to come and also for the North Koreans to tire themselves out. So the in amphibious landings on the 15th of September, 1950, the landing at Incheon, mm-hmm. Dougie Mack's masterstroke, a.k.a. Yes. Operation Chromite. Nice. That's now, what I call my stroke. Dougie, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Dougie had had the idea of landing at Incheon since July, mm-hmm. but everyone said he was crazy. Crazy. Uh, yeah. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, all the key naval officers in the Far East, and these yeah. are guys that had a lot of experience with uh, tricky landings right. uh, from World War II, yes. all unanimously said crazy. it was a VBI. Very bad idea. <laughs> now, among other things, they thought it was on the wrong side of Korea. Pusan's sure. on the east coast of Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Incheon's on the west coast of Korea. Next to Seoul. Yep. yep. Uh, MacArthur said to them, it'll be like an electric fan. You go to the wall and pull the plug out and the fan will start. <laughs> when we... Uh, when we we'll, Actually, I'm, I'm doing Bill Clinton's my voice for the day. <clears throat> It'll be like an electric fan. You go to the wall, pull the plug out, and the fan will stop. When when we get well ashore at Incheon, the North Koreans will have no choice but to pull out or surrender. Like like uh, Monica <laughs> surrendered when I stuck my dick in her mouth in the uh, Oval Office. And, uh, and I said, surrender! Uh, like uh, I need a nap. Hillary... Hillary made me pull my dick out 35 years ago and hasn't let me stick it in since. So what am I going to do, you know? Yes. I was governor of Arkansas and I was the president. And I'm the victim. I just uh, yeah. I had to I had to get it where I could take it. You know, did I have to allegedly rape a few women along the way? Yes, I did. But uh, what are you going to do? I'm the, I'm the governor. I'm the president. And Hillary... Right. Hillary wouldn't let me stick it land in her inchon, so, uh, yeah. you know. And then, see, the ironic part was someone said, uh, well, why didn't you just rape Hillary? Have you seen her? No. That's Have you not seen gonna Hillary? Happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Have you seen her angry? Oh, That'd make your dick shrivel up. 
Anyway. I wouldn't fuck her with your dick. I wouldn't fuck her with Donald Trump's dick. Gotta be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not only were the, the naval guys, the guys who specialized in amphibious landings against this, the Joint Chiefs against this, but they were saying, okay, even if we did want to consider this, Inchon is not the place to do it. They've got this 32 tidal range, which means there's a, a difference of 32 feet between high tide and low tide. Once it's high tide, you've got like three hours to unload. This is fucking crazy. It will be a disaster. And here's the other part. Because World War II was only five years ago, everybody's bringing up the debacle at Anzio in Italy, right below Rome, where the Americans land. They don't go in right away. And the Germans just line up all the big guns they got on the height. And they just pound on the Americans. And the Americans lose like 7,000 men dead and 37, excuse me, 36,000 wounded. So they're like, this is a killing zone that you're creating for the North Koreans and they will take advantage of it. This, sir, is a bad idea. But from what I read, and you probably know way more about this than I do because you're a, you're a military guy, but it was the only sensible landing point. The other yes. possibilities right. were either too close to the North Korean army in Pusan or mm -hmm. too far north or didn't have the right scope for breaking out inland once you'd landed or didn't have the right depth for yeah. a landing. But as you say, there were a bunch of problems with Inchon. The tides was one thing, not only the heights of the tides, but the the tides would only be high enough for big landing craft for three hours. On then three it would days. Become just... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, literally three, three hours. possible dates. Right. And then it would return to being just money Mud. banks. Exactly. And there was no chance of a tactical surprise before no. the landing force could go ashore because they would have to take the island of Walmidu 11 hours earlier because it sort of commanded the approach. Right. Also, it was close to typhoon season. Yes. So And great. they had steep hills surrounding Incheon, ideal positions for the North Koreans to oh, yeah. launch a counterattack on the beachhead. Yeah. And due to the timing of the tides, the right. landing would have to pl take place at night. Right. There were early evening, actually. There would be two hours of That's daylight yeah. for the landing force to get themselves into position. Yeah. Um, to which MacArthur so, said, what's your point? Because I want to do yeah. this. I can fucking do this. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the guys in the 70s or late 60s or whatever... I mean, I don't like him, but he knows what the fuck he's talking about. I'm sure he did some research. and But it was literally him on one side of the table and all the other brass of the United States government, including the uh, the Joint Chiefs, the Chiefs of Staff, on the other side. And he's like, nope, we can do it. This is what I want to do. Well, the impression that I got was mm -hmm. this was the only thing they could do. Walker right. couldn't hold on any longer. Yeah. I mean, they didn't really know at this juncture how weak the North Koreans were. Exactly. Uh, so from any outside perspective, if you had any idea what was going on in the Pusan, mm -hmm. it was just a matter of time before the entire UN, uh, American, South Korean uh, troops were going to be destroyed, wiped off. You either evacuated them, right. which had its own problems, uh, or... Mm -hmm you send in a force to give them support. And this was the only way he could see of doing that. It right. was either suffer another failure like Bataan again, or just get it done. Um, yeah. I think the brass was playing because of the horrible way the war had gone for these three or four months, whatever it is, um, July, October, excuse me, July, August, September. I think he was, they were literally being too conventional. They were like, this is so bad. Let's just try to hold on to what we have. Whereas MacArthur's like, no, 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 this is a game changer because if we can land and capture Seoul or at the very least threaten to retake Seoul and cut their supply lines, those guys are going to have to retreat or surrender. So this is risky, but this is a grand plan that can accomplish a lot of things at one time if we can pull it off. And we and you've studied enough history to know that if you try anything, whether it's a military operation or anything, if you, if you try it half-assed because you don't believe in it, it will fail because you're going to fuck it up. So MacArthur's like, not only do we need to try this, but I need you guys 100% into this or it's going to be a disaster. And it's not going to be my fault. And the other problem they had, of course, mm -hmm. was that it was a long march from Inchon to 
Pusan. Yes. Um, it was from one side of the country. I mean, look, uh, Korea's not huge. It's basically the size of Utah. There's a lot of hills. In the shape of Florida. Mountains. Yeah, rivers. Yeah, but they still had to move the force across the country to get to the other right. side. Right. Um, but despite everyone telling him he was wrong, MacArthur just stuck to his guns. Right. And August 23rd. There was this big meeting. Yeah, sorry. Big meeting sorry. on August 23rd. Mm-hmm. On the sixth floor of the Daiichi building in Tokyo, MacArthur and all of the, the Far East commanders were there. Rear Admiral James Doyle gave a little speech where he uh, presented <laughs> the Navy's position on the idea where he said, the best I can say is that Inchon is not impossible. Do you know how long his speech was? No, how long? 90 minutes. He spoke for 90 minutes about tides, gradients, and other physical factors of landing troops which was good enough for dougie man if <laughs> it's not impossible it. i'll take I'll it i'll take it yeah <laughs> right he stood up with his uh, corn cob pipe and uh said admiral <laughs> in all my years of military service that is the finest briefing i have ever received commander you have taught me all that i had Ever dreamed of knowing about tides? Do you know in World War One they got our divisions to Europe through submarine-infested seas? I have a deep admiration for the Navy. From the humiliation of Bataan, the Navy brought us back. And then, with a tear in his eye, he concluded, I never thought the day would come that the Navy would be unable to support the Army in its operations. And, with and that the Oscar goes note, to. Sorry. <laughs> me or Dougie Mac? I'm not sure. You, joint. It's joint. joint it's Oscar. a joint. You love joints. Joint. Yeah, you love joints. They love joints. <laughs> you love a, do love a joint. More of a vape, man. But vape. Joint, I got sure. you. In, in, sure. a, in yeah. a sticky situation, sure thing. Do what you can. Well, <clears throat> I think that's it, Ray. That's yeah. where we'll leave it for today. They don't want to land at Inchon, they think it's crazy. Yeah. How does Dougie Mac get around that? Uh, we'll be back next time. But before we go, let me just remind you that uh, your mother is... Your mother is a dirty, dirty whore. <laughs> My mom... curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 